it, it's hard to describe the impact that Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars had on my generation. To a 15-year-old in 1971, T-Rex and David Bowie were revolutionary. I'm Nick Harcourt, and this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. I'm Nick Harcourt, and welcome to another episode of our Sounds of Success podcast. On this episode, we welcome Bob Pisani, who has been gracing your television screens for CNBC since 1990, where he reports live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and is CNBC's on-air stocks editor. Fun fact, by the way, Bob is a huge jazz aficionado, and one of his favorite anthology collections is called actionable offenses in decent phonograph recordings from the 1890s. Well, we'll have to get to that a little bit later on, Bob. But first up, it's great to see you. Thanks for doing our podcast. Great to be with you, Nick. Uh, I had a wonderful time with you at an ETF conference a while ago where you did such a, a, a great job interviewing one of uh, my heroes. Uh, and maybe you can talk about that, but it's always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, that was fun. We were down in Hollywood, Florida, at an ETF conference, ETF.com conference, and uh, I had the, the honor of speaking with Quincy Jones in front of a, a whole bunch of financial consultants and people from that world. It was a lot of fun. Before and, you we hosted, get... and you hosted one hell of a party afterwards. Quincy, oh, Jones, it, Quincy Jones, folks, in case you ever wondered, is a hell of a lot of fun to go to a party with. And so is Nick Harcourt. Well, Quincy doesn't get up until four in the afternoon because I think he's up till four in the morning every day. He is. He made a point of that. He's been a night owl probably for 70 years. Before we talk about music, I want to just ask you where you are, how's things in, in your world? Um, I'm eager to go back to the NYSE. Um, I'm anticipating, uh, like everybody else, that the, uh, the, the vaccines are going to be successful and people are going to uh, uh, come out of the woodwork. So I'm optimistic and, and looking forward. Uh, I see the horizon right now. And the second half of the year, believe me, it's going to be a lot better for everybody. Well, let's talk music. When I did meet you, as you mentioned, three or four years ago, I think, we talked a little bit about music. And I, I know that you're a jazz aficionado, but you also sent me a ton of lists of the music that you're into and music that you've collected. But let's start at the beginning. What was your first musical memory? Well, growing up, like most kids, I'm 64. So growing up in the late 60s, um, my first record, uh, which I got in 1964, I was eight years old, was Puff the Magic Dragon by <laughs> Peter, Paul and Mary. I, yeah. think, I think a lot of people, my generation, that was their first record. My mother bought me a blue little phonograph to play it on. And within two years uh, at the Hatboro Record Store in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, I went and I bought my first 45s. Uh, Frank Sinatra had That's Life out that year. In 1969, I bought my first LP. I was 13. It was the Bee Gees' first album, the one with 1941 Mining Disaster on it. Uh, and Procol Harum's first album, of course, the one with Whiter Shade of Pale. Those two albums are indelibly etched in my memory. My first concert was the Smothers Brothers. I grew up, of course, in television. The Smothers Brothers had a very successful TV show on, as did Tom Jones as did Glenn Campbell. This was the era of the musical variety show and the Smothers Brothers put on a concert in New Hope in 1970. New Hope was in Bucks County on the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. My father took me, I was 
13 or 14. The first concert I ever went to in my own car with my friends was Grand Funk Railroad. <laughs> Talk about a blast from the past with Billy Preston, who had been very successful. It was March or so, 1972 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Uh, another band called White Witch opened for them. And it was a great era to be 16 years old because this was the era of what we now call prog rock, but The Who was still making great albums. Pink Floyd was about to make some series of amazing albums. The Stones had Sticky Fingers out. Goat's Head Soup was about to come out. They had the Greatest Hits album. I mean, it was just uh, a great time to be into rock music. It was probably the absolute apotheosis for rock in that period from about 1970 to about 1976 or so. You're answering my questions before I even get to them. So I'm going to have to thank you, but I'm going to back up a little bit to talk about the first albums you bought, which as you mentioned, uh, the Bee Gees was, was, was one of them. Have you seen the, the documentary that's out yes. right now? Fabulous. Loved it. My wife is a huge Bee Gees fan. I mean, Barry Gibb toured a couple of years ago and she was at like the fourth row seat in uh, Philly to sit. So yes, I thought it was very moving. I liked very much how they actually got video of them working and uh, putting together some of their most famous songs, very poignant. I think the most amazing thing about that documentary for people who don't know their early work is that this band has really had four different careers, four completely different incarnations. Most people just think of the disco stuff, but there was a whole world in Australia before that a whole world in the UK before that. Um, fascinating band. And yeah. as a songwriter, Barry Gibb is, is right up there. You know, it's funny because I say that album was their first album, the one with New York Mining Disaster 1941 on it. But in Australia, they had already several albums out. I didn't even realize that. Because, and I know when you mentioned that special, they showed it in the special. And I said, oh my gosh, they had albums out. But to me, that's considered their first album, that that album in 68 or 69 right. uh, that they had out. And they had a song out at that time, the 1st of May. I have the 45 of it. And every Fantastic. year uh, on the 1st of May, I get my wife up and we dance to it. When I was small and Christmas trees were tall. I love that. I laugh while others used to play. It's a kind of simple ditty, but it's very heartwarming. Now we are tall and Christmas trees are small. Bob sings, everybody. So the, <laughs> anyhow, you don't get me started on this. No, no, no. Have you, have you, have Randy you, Alley. <laughs> do, you, do you play a musical instrument? I used to play guitar in the 60s badly. Part of the things you realize in life is like rhythm, sense of rhythm, not good. My wife laughs at my dancing abilities. You can teach that, but it's really better if it's innate sense of rhythm. And I didn't have that. And as a result, as a rhythm guitar player, it was always very, I couldn't understand why. That's I mean, tough. How I couldn't, you have to feel it. You have to, and they kept saying to me, you got to feel this. And I kept trying to figure out what is it like to feel that? Yeah. And I get it now intellectually. Back then, I wish people would have, there's a certain way to teach that feeling in the music. You got to yeah. be with it. It's not an intellectual thing so much. You so. mentioned the Smothers Brothers as, as your first concert, and you uh, talked about a couple of others as well. What's your most memorable concert? And I know well, you've seen a lot of music over the years, but is there anything that absolutely stands out at the top? Absolutely. The Ziggy Stardust Tour. David Bowie became famous in Philadelphia in 1972. It, it's hard to describe the impact that Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mars had on my generation. We didn't call it glam rock. That was a name people put on this later. 
on people put these labels on the everything later on when after they figured it out but to a 15 year old in 1971 t-rex and david bowie were revolutionary my four or five friends in the basement of joe Furt's house in 1971 when electric warrior came out we just listened to that and it sounded so sexy so cool to us and so different than what the who were doing that it sounded fresh and new to us and it sounded a little rebellious and so i me and my three friends went to see bowie and it was december 72 at the tower theater in philadelphia and it was four of guys we couldn't even imagine asking any girls that's how dorky we were we wore our platform shoes yes and we stood on the hand rests at the Tower Theater, not on the seats, on the handrest, standing up. And, you know, when Suffragette City, I mean, he came out and he had a, this outfit with the concentric rings on it and two people came off and tore it in half in the middle of Suffragette. Wham, bam, thank you, man. I mean, the place went nuts. And I kept thinking to myself, this is what the apocalypse is going to look like. Exactly <laughs> like this. And Mick Ronson was just swelling away. He was, I mean, it's so indelibly etched in my mind as a big moment. Then a year or two later, he came back and he did a series of concerts that came to be known as David Live at the Tower. And we were all bitterly disappointed because he had fired Mick Ronson and the Spiders from Mars and was about to go into the phase that you would associate with the Philly soul sound with young Americans. And we didn't like it. To us, this new thing he, he was trying to do, it wasn't apparent to us. And he was trying to sound a lot like Frank Sinatra. He was coked out of his mind. He you was crooning on coke. I mean, you could just see it. He, he was just different person altogether yeah. than he'd been two years before. And we kind of felt like, what happened? We wanted to hear Diamond Dogs. Diamond Dogs was great to us. And he was in Aladdin Sane, but he was transitioning out and it didn't, and I, even to this day, I hate that album. I have a hard time listening to it because I knew what I was doing when I was there. And I know we were all looking at each other and saying, where's, freaking David Bowie. Sure. You know, he was becoming a great artist. He was changing like Dylan. He was changing. He and was we transitioning. Were... Yes. And obviously, as we all know, throughout his career, there's so many different incarnations. You know, I, I love the fact that you were in Philadelphia and I was in Birmingham in England. We're about the same age and we had exactly the same experience the first time we saw David Bowie. Because I, I saw him on top of the puffs, which is the British chart. Right. And I, I was sitting there watching this guy come out in makeup and uh, high heels or stacked shoes, satin jackets, and the same with T-Rex. And uh, both of those artists squeegeed my third eye. And all of a sudden, the world changed. As you mentioned, as a 13-year-old kid, and you've grown up with traditional music and restrictions or whatever, and then somebody comes along and just goes, wow, it's a whole new world. Yeah. I love that phrase, squeegeed my third eye. Squeegeed my third is eye. That, is that, did you, I, I want to use I, that line. Is I, that your I, line? I didn't steal it from anybody, but maybe I heard it somewhere. I don't know, but I- I love be. that line. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. That's very prosaic. <laughs> Please I'm going to attribute that to you. But yes, um, that's exactly what happened. And yeah. not until I probably saw the Ramones in 77, did I actually feel- and they also kind of changed. Blondie and the Ramones, it's another separate issue, but they kind of 
changed my world completely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's hard to do that. I mean, you know, rock and roll, the problem with something like rock is there's sonic limitations. There's only so much you can do with the basic format. Sure. It's hard to like be really surprised after a while. This is one of the problems jazz has, as you know. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it was quite impressive. They were able to pull that off. It's fairly late in rock by 1971 or 72. Right. And as you mentioned, 76, 77, everything started changing with the punk movement that was coming in. And then obviously the pop punk the movement that came after that. It was the clash for me that changed it. I think I was stuck in rock and prog rock. And then the punk thing was starting. I didn't really understand it. And then I heard London calling. I'm like, I'm in. Yeah. Phony yeah. Beatlemania has bitten the dust. Exactly. Yeah, as uh, I like to say. Let me, let me ask you about an album or an artist that you return to when you want to dance? Because you just told me that you dance around at the house with your wife. When you feel like dancing, is there something that you, oh, let me put on that album or that artist? Well, I mean, you're gonna laugh, but my wife feels like dancing with me. She puts on, um, there's a, a doo-wop set that uh, Rhino put out, oh, 20 years ago. That's really the cream of the crop of all the doo-wop stuff, beginning with the Orioles in 1951 and going up to the mid 60s. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll dance around with that kind of stuff. And any kind of disco. My wife was a disco queen. She loved dancing in the 70s. ABBA? It, it may sound corny, but I love ABBA. I thought they were brilliant pop music. I'm not a snob. I recognize great pop music when I see it. And they were really good. They had great producers. They knew what they were doing. And it's not easy to pull that off. What are the albums or artists that you come back to when you feel melancholic? Or maybe you just want to connect with, uh, with that side of you that, you know, perhaps needs a good cry. The Velvet Underground. <laughs> that first album, it's hard to describe the effect that had on me. Um, who was it who, who said uh, only 100 people bought the first Velvet Underground album, but all 100 went out and started a band? Sure. Um, it was, uh, what's his name? Roxy Music guy. Oh, Eno. Uh, Eno, Brian Eno. I'm yeah. pretty sure it was Brian Eno. Yeah. In 1971, Lou Reed released Transformer. And I'm sitting there 15 years old. And suddenly this song, Walk on the Wild Sides, comes on the radio. I look at my friend. We're driving around. I said, what the hell is this song about? And we keep listening to it. Holly came from Miami FLA, hitchhiked her way across the USA. And I'm trying, who the hell is this? Who's Holly? So the only thing we, yeah. So the only thing, we didn't have any internet. We had Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine. Cream was a little more downscale than Rolling Stone. So in Rolling Stone, there's a review that comes out. Famous Velvet Underground frontman Lou Reed puts out. And this is about Andy Warhol and the factory and Holly works at the factory. And we look at each other, who the hell is the Velvet Underground? This is 1971. So we'd run to the record stores in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and we go up to every place we could find. You got any Velvet Underground records? No, nobody had. Now, we didn't know it. The Velvet Underground had disbanded. They never sold any albums anyhow. It was unlikely we would have found any. And it wasn't until I went uh, to Berkeley in 74, you know, used record shop that I found the first album um, and the original one, the real one, the, the first pressings actually had the peel, the banana peel. You could actually peel it off. It actually that's peeled the, off. Yeah. That's the collector's item. Yeah. I have one of those. That's, those are really rare. Do you, are do, you, do, you, do you have the Rolling Stones sticky finger album with the actual zipper in it? No, that's another one. Right. No, I bought that when it came out, but I don't have that with the actual zipper on it. Yeah. That's another one of my favorite albums of all time. So it, 
to, we couldn't find the damn album. And finally I found it and just sitting there listening to Nico. Then I embarked on an effort to find Nico and Nico albums and found Soho Girls and, and all of that. So all, that darker side that, that Lou Reed represented was always brilliant to me. But even that, I wouldn't call a lot of Lou Reed music is not really melancholy. It's just about very serious subjects. So Sister Ray, I just played the hell out of that song for to me. That was just a great punk, you know, relentless song. It just had a great drive to it. But no, I, you know, you're asking a very specific question about down music. I kind of avoid that in a way. Like we, we were talking uh, before we started rolling tape or the digital, whatever is spinning around recording this. We were talking about goth. We were talking a little bit about some some of that music. You're talking about Bauhaus. Is that uh, music that you got into at the time or anything that you still listen to? Well, goth started coming out. Bauhaus was probably 79 or so, 78 or so. Sounds about um, right. Yeah. So by 1978, uh, I went to California to go to school for a few years in California, in San Francisco, it was all about remnants of the 60s. The 60s were over in 74, 75, but nobody sent us the memo. Yeah, they still um, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you, it was a pretty big shock to find out the 60s were over. Um, they got, they're just sitting there on Haight-Ashbury and yeah. where is everyone? <laughs> just a bunch of heroin addicts now. That's not fun. Um, but there was several different groups. There was a group that was into the old stuff, the Grateful Dead and Neil Young. And then there were people who were into jazz and blues. Uh, and my roommate was a fellow named Rich Hover. And the first day I got there, um, he walked up to me and said, you got to listen to these three albums. I forget the first album. The second album was uh, Bob Marley's Natty Dread album. It had just come out. That was the one that had No Women, No Cry on it. It literally would just come out. And the third was Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. Mm -hmm. So I liked, the, I'd never heard reggae before. Um, this is July or August of 74. That was a beautiful album. But when I put on, I had the headphones, you know, everyone was into the headphones. You plug the headphones in, they were like surround sure. sound. When I put on Bitches Brew, whole, it just blew my mind. I still remember sitting in the chair listening to it because I was in the dark side of the moon and metal. Dark metal was the album before Dark Side of the Moon for Pink Floyd. Those were space music to me, to our generation. You put on the headphones and you just got went, lost. went to Venus. Yeah. Bitches Brew took you to Pluto. It, th this is in my 18-year-old imagination, what happened to me. And it turned me into a jazz fan. It changed my life, literally, that, that album. And I went out and tried to find out who exactly is Miles Davis. By then, of course, Miles Davis was sitting in Harlem, stoned out of his mind, uh, and, and already made his greatest albums. But I started listening to the 50s albums, which I still listen to consistently, and tried to get through a lot of the 60s albums. But it was the late 60s stuff, the, the f melding of rock and jazz with John McLaughlin, that really impressed me. And his efforts to do that impressed me tremendously. And from there, I met some friends who played saxophone. I had a friend, Tony Magistrali, whose brother played saxophone, and he gave me Billie Holiday's greatest hits. And then I got into Lester Young, and then I got into Count Basie, and this is 75 or 6. And if I had to say, what's my enduring love? It's jazz and, and rock of a certain period. I still regularly play Charlie Parker's dial sessions. I still regularly listen to a certain era of uh, Count Basie, which is why I was so excited meeting Quincy Jones because he was with them. Absolutely. The 
with All that great them. band. Yeah. Um, and I just said, man, that was so great. I mean, the minute I said Basie in the 50s, his face just lit up. He smiled. You could just see the beautiful memories going off in the back of his head. He was young and he was hip and he was with the damn hippest band in, on, in town. I envy that career that he had, but particularly that rooting in jazz. And you could see how emotionally, it, how much emotionally it meant to him those periods. He might have been famous for being with Michael Jackson, but you could see just the happiness on his face when I yeah, mentioned it's, Count Basie. Uh, another guy who's had a, a bunch of different incarnations. Obviously, he started as a musician, as you know, as a horn player, uh, and then uh, became a producer. And when I think of Quincy Jones, the Michael Jackson stuff to me is the obvious stuff. Yeah. The, the stuff that's more interesting is working with Sinatra working on some of those early movies that, that he worked on and, and, and scored. And he is a, an amazing artist as, as well as a producer. What's um, amazing is how much respect everyone has for him. Frank Sinatra was famous for even dissing some of the best producers on the planet. He gave a hard time to several of these guys that were really geniuses. But I never heard him say a damn, even snide remark about Quincy Jones, anybody. that I mean, the man is just universally respected. And I've been in a business covering financial news for 30 years. There's people snipe at people all the time in this business. You know, you're wrong. You're a shill for Wall Street. You're too bullish. You're too bearish. Sure. You have a lot of enemies. People have natural enemies. Quincy Jones has no natural enemies. I, don't, I never heard anybody say anything about right. him in any way negative. It's remarkable. It's a testimony to the guy because you think by now somebody would have come out of the woodwork and said something. And, and, and I remember you sitting down with him at, the, at that conference and spending a little bit of time with him. And I would imagine, I'm pretty sure that he would have showed you his pinky ring. He did. That, that Frank Sinatra wore and left him in his, in his will. Yeah, he was very proud of it. Oh, man, he held it up right in yep. front of me. And it's a, it's a beautiful ring. But yeah, that's a testimony to how close he was uh, to him. So, and of course, he was with Peggy Lee. They were lovers. And he was big involved in her life and very helpful in producing albums with her in the 60s. She had some beautiful yep. music out then. There's a woman who greatly, I think, undervalued and underestimated. I think very highly of Peggy Lee. You know, there was a time when I did a radio show in Los Angeles called Morning Becomes Eclectic, and we would play Peggy Lee every now and then. And her publisher would call us every time and say, thank you for playing Peggy Lee on the radio, because nobody uh, knows who she is unless they were around at the time. I'm very proud that I saw Peggy Lee in concert and I'll t I saw her at the Hilton in New York just shortly before she died in a little room. They brought her out in a wheelchair and she sang so beautifully. She sang some of that Walt Disney stuff. She was involved in a big legal dispute with Walt Disney, as I recall. And it was just her voice was very intact. It was only a few years before she died. Right. And it was one of those great memories. You ever, you ever I do something like, thank God I went to see them. Thank God I went to see certain people. Got to see um, them, yeah. Nina Simone, another one. I saw her in Philadelphia, probably her, one of her last concerts, and she came out and she studied here at, at, at the Music Academy here in Philadelphia and had deep ties to Philadelphia. And she was just beautiful. And I'm just so glad I saw her because she only lived I mean, a very, very short right. while after that. Do you have a, a favorite artist and this is a difficult question, I think, for a jazz aficionado, because the full question is, do you have a favorite artist that never quite made it? And in the jazz world, there are plenty of people who are well known in the jazz world, but not outside. It's a, 
it's a small world from the point of view of uh, people being aware of artists. But do you have a favorite artist, jazz or otherwise, that you felt should have gotten more attention? Well, I'll tell you the problem with the favorite artist thing is it's better to ask about what your five or six or seven or eight or nine are because it's hard to just get it down to one. I was very influenced when I got more into jazz in the 70s by the Blue Note people that were playing in the 1960s. And I felt most of them didn't get a lot of attention. I went back years later and read some articles about the actual number of albums that were sold of these very important, like Grant Green, for example, who were out there, even Herbie Hancock, he became famous playing with Miles. And when Watermelon Man came out in the 70s, he had some hits. But the amount of just straight ahead jazz that Blue Note specialized in in the 60s was remarkably small. It was in the few thousands. And yet these, article, these albums are considered seminal recordings today. So Miles Davis was arguably a star. Um, certainly by the mid 60s, he could get into Carnegie Hall. Um, but he was one of the very few, and even he was very dissatisfied with the sales of jazz albums. I mean, he famously said, how come, you know, these guys, Led Zeppelin, how, how come this guy Santana, how come these other guys are doing so well and I'm not? I want to sell like they sell. Um, and Miles was competitive and felt that, and I don't blame him for feeling that way. But yes, uh, it, generally, I think jazz is greatly underappreciated. I think the the problem is it, it went off on a lot of difficult directions. Difficult to listen to. Um, Diffusion even, stuff. Even jazz rock in the 70s, you know, Return to Forever, as brilliant as the Chick Koreas of the world are, and they are truly brilliant. I had a period where I went to those shows and it didn't speak to me long term. I don't listen to that music anymore. I do listen to the Blue Note stuff. I put on Grant Green. I do listen to Miles Davis, particularly the 50s Miles Davis. I listen to Count Basie anytime, almost anything from even 30s stuff you can put on. Um, but even his band in the 50s and 60s, this, the, the small band stuff he did in the 60s, you know, there is such a thing as timeless music. The problem I have with saying that is it sounds kind of elitist. So you and I know that you don't compare the Beatles to Frank Sinatra. You, you compare the Beatles... Uh, to the Rolling Stones, you compare Frank Sinatra to Tony Bennett. Sure. And there are, within that, reasonable people would say, this is, this is a better effort. This is Better music is not a word I like, but there is stuff on a higher level. Um, and so I have made that distinction in my own head of what speaks to me the most. And, you know, now that I'm 64, it's amazing how I keep going back to stuff that I originally discovered in the early 1970s. Yeah, we have our touchstones, don't we, that we return to. My next question, and we're just down to the last couple here, is do you have a recent discovery, whether it's new music or whether it's something that you just weren't aware of that was released years ago that you would like to share with us here? Because we're putting together a, a Sounds of Success playlist on Spotify and putting songs on from our guests like, like yourself. So is there anything that you'd like to turn us on to? There's a band called Krungbin that yes. came out. You know them? I do. Well, they very much impressed me. They have a really cool sound. They have a, a, a cool female singer. They've got a cool guitar player and a very cool drummer. It's essentially a trio with singer, as I recall. 
And they put out a great album at the end of last year. It's hard to describe it. Uh, it's kind of eclectic blues rock, but it's, it's just kind of chill. I think that's the right word. Um, how would you describe it, Nick? I think that if you like chill music, if you like world music, you know, mash those up together with an American sensibility from Houston, Texas, which is where they're from. That's a great choice, a great suggestion. Part of the problem with getting older is you get sort of stuck in a mindset. So I'll give you an example. In the late 90s, I tried to get into grunge. I really tried. My wife and I went to Seattle in 1999 just to check out the scene. And we hung out in a lot of crummy coffee houses uh, and had a lot of fun in Seattle. It's a great, great town. Fantastic. And I listened to Soundgarden and I kept trying the other bands. And I, you know, I kept saying, would Hendrix be playing like this if he was around now? And I don't know. The, and ultimately, I just said, you know what? It's okay. I understand why this is happening, this kind of music, why it's gone into like grunge style. It's a logical evolution, just like hair bands were a logical evolution in 1985. But it didn't speak to me. And I kept trying to figure out, why am I having a hard time getting into this music? And I think it's because it lacked a certain sense of melody that I was used to. I, I tried this with a lot of other things like OK Computer. I kept trying and trying to get into Radiohead because all the people like you, who I respect, said, Bob, this is a really important album, like really important with a capital R and a capital I. Like, sure. Bob, do you are you an idiot? This is going to be historically important 25 years from now. They're going to cite this. OK. And I kept listening to the damn album. I kept saying, OK, oh, historically important. Histor and I kept finally said, I don't really like this album that much. Hey, I it's. Don't it's it's all good. If it doesn't speak to you, it doesn't speak to you. And I, I think there's something to be said for as we get older, we do tend to stick with the stuff that we like. And it's difficult sometimes for us to maybe go down 20 years and, and join the people who are 20 years younger that who are listening to this. So if you right. talk about the 90s thing and the grunge thing, personally, I think Chris Cornell is an amazing vocalist. But does Soundgarden have a lot of great albums? Maybe one. Um, I'll tell you this and I'll share this with the audience, obviously, right now. Uh, a number of years ago, I, I hosted a TV show called Guitar Center Sessions on DirecTV. And one of the interviews that we did, uh, we did with the band Cake, who you may remember from, yes. from the 90s. A lot of fun. And they were not a grunge band, although they were in the charts on, on the alternative rock charts at the same time. But he described grunge as oral deforestation, which I thought, <laughs> if, Brilliant. If, if you don't like that music... <laughs> That's that's a great term. Oral um, deforestation. Oral deforestation. That's a brilliant line. So <laughs> let me just give you three or four albums in the last twenty years that I that I like. The Strokes. Is this it? That was just fresh and just sounded uh, great. The Their Black new album's Keys, pretty good as well. The Black Keys, great band from Ohio. Just, they made it big. Yeah. But their early albums, that uh, that Brothers album, sure. that was really good. I liked Vampire Weekend. People thought they were slight, but they seemed like the right sound for the right time. That first album, I think it was called Vampire Weekend. Yeah, um, that just sounded fresh to me. That sounded, it just sounded fun. You know what I do? I look at the Rolling Stone list about top pop charts of the year, pop best albums. I go through it. I look at the rock oriented or poppy or hip hoppy, and then I just start playing it. I, I literally look at the lists. And I think, oh, this might be interesting. And I try. I play it for my wife and she'll say, who's this? 
And most of the time, it doesn't work very well. As you know, rock is a basically almost a nothing medium. They don't give enough awards anymore for it. Yeah, I think that's going to be changing. There are so many kids been picking up guitars, and not just kids, by the way, but so many people have been picking up guitars in the last 10 months with the pandemic. We're going to see a ton of rock music coming in the next year. Remember oh, what you so heard first. I'm but, really uh, hopeful you're right about that. That would make uh, me... Well, I know folks happy. who work at Fender, and they are selling guitars. They're flying off the shelves. So wow. We'll see what they make with them. But I got two more before I let you go. What's your guilty pleasure? So mine is Duran Duran, okay? Oh, gosh. When I want to connect with a part of me that, you know, takes me back to a certain place in time, okay. I'll throw on I, Duran. This is very or... easy. Burt Backrack. Get the anthology, The Look of Love. I grew up in the 1960s. My father hated rock and roll. It's hard to imagine like kids talking to their parents today because the, everybody grew up with rock and roll, including your parents. But back then, my father grew up in New York in the 1940s and Frank Sinatra was the king. And he thought rock and roll was a lot of crap. So he, my mother and father got divorced when I was 10 and 66, but he would pick us up in his car and his Rambler and he wouldn't listen to a rock station. He would listen to what we today would call middle of the road. Middle of the road, middle yeah. Middle of the road stations played pop music that did not have a big guitar sound, okay? So Burt Backrack was the answer. And those songs, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, and all that whole genre, um, I grew up with sitting there with my crew cut, 10 years old, listening to, to that kind of music. And I'll tell you how strange it was to me. I'm listening and listening, and there was a big hit, Fool on the Hill, in 1966 which it was Sergio Mendes actually had the hit. And several years later, a friend of mine got the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's, which is Fool on the Hills on that. And I listened to it and I said, oh, this is a Sergio Mendes song. I know this song. And he said, no, idiot. This is a Beatles song. This is Fool on the Hills. This is the, the... I said, I, don't, I, I didn't know the song. I knew from Sergio Mendes because they had a big hit with Fool on the Hill. when. Sure. when Sergeant Pepper came. That's how I knew all of this stuff. So anytime I hear this music, and about 10 years ago, I met Dionne Warwick. She came to the New York Stock Exchange, and I was like a little kid. I ran up to her. I Fabulous. shook her hand. I said, I'm Bob Pisani. You don't know me, but I grew up with your music, sitting in my father's Rambler. And every time, do you know the way to San Jose comes? I'm 10 years old. You're again. right there. Yeah. And I said, and she looked at me and said, tell your father that Eventually, I found the way to San Jose. <laughs> and I, I said, I, you probably tend that to 10,000 people. She said, just tell your dad. Doesn't matter. She said it to you. And that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. We're going to wrap this up now. But right at the beginning, I, I mentioned that I'd gone through a, a list of stuff that you'd sent me about favorite albums. And, and one of them was uh, uh, favorite anthology collections. And right at the top of it, I saw actionable offenses in decent phonograph recordings from the 1890s. So that sounded weird and wonderful. So I pulled that and I'm going to ask you before we go, what exactly is that? So in the 1890s, there was a remarkable amount of, of, of diverse music that was actually created. Of course, this is the dawn of music. Edison created the phonograph and there were cylinders at, at the time. And there was marching bands, uh, there was Southern proto blues, and there was also some, uh, this is remarkable to me, uh, obscene little ditties that came out. So this album came out uh, a number of years ago and a lot of it's very hard to hear, even set up because it's the, the cylinders they were made on deteriorated. And some of these have been very uh, 
poor condition, but it's a testimony to how nothing's really changed. You think like, oh, in 1900, people was doing church music and that was it, but they weren't. There was plenty of church music, but there was plenty of other kinds of music around as well. Right. I got one question. We're done. Thank you for hanging out with me. How do you feel right now? You know what? I feel happy because talking to a guy like you who appreciates uh, music the way you do, it's hard. And every once in a while, I'm also into science fiction. I grew up with the same thing in, in the 50s and 60s, reading Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov. And every time I've come across some person, if I, they're walking down the street and they have an old Robert Heinlein novel, like Stranger in a Strange Land, I always stop and say, wow, I read that. I was 10. And it's sort of like a bond. And it makes you happy because it, it shoots off endorphins in your brain or dopamine or one of those yeah, brain does. chemicals that just brings you back and it makes you happy because music makes me happy. It's been a part of my life, my whole life. I got music albums and posters on my wall of my favorite rock fans. And you, you know, what's beautiful about it. You grow and you change as a human being, but there's certain things about yourself that never changes. And it really makes you feel good. There are certain habits you wish you could change that you can't, but there's certain things like, I know I'm always going to love music. I know I'm always going to love science fiction. It's never going to die. I, I always used to be afraid. Maybe I'll turn into something I'll hate, a person I'll hate. I won't recognize anymore. <laughs> but it's not really true. I get older. I, I still look at science fiction magazines just to see what's going on. Sure. Uh, I subscribe to Rolling Stone. 40 years I've been a Rolling Stone subscriber. I still look at the charts. I still say, uh, I don't buy much of it, but I still try to pay attention. And you want to know what's going on. Yeah. Well, listen. Yeah. And so it makes me happy. Just talking to you, Nick, makes me happy. Bob, it's been a total pleasure. I know I met you a few years ago and we said one day we'll get together in real life. And I hope we can do that. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you, Nick. And I look forward to getting together with you, with or without Quincy Jones or any other famous person you're hanging out with and <laughs> pulling up favorite rock albums. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. <laughs>